turn your, uh, your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to be there this morning. Give you a few minutes to get there, and we'll, we'll read the scripture together uh, throughout the course of, the, of our lesson this morning. Uh, there's three parts. We'll go through each of those parts. We'll read it at that point. But uh, let's turn our attention really quick to last week. Last week we were in chapter 17, the familiar story of David and Goliath, right? If there ever was an underdog story, David and Goliath is that underdog story. The, the one that's probably greatest of all, most, no, most well known. It's a true story about the young shepherd boy, David, right? Who defies the odds. And he, he beats the apparently unbeatable foe. Remember, Goliath is larger than life. He's larger than any man should be, Right? Uh, over nine feet tall, scaled, and heavy armor that looks like it's Im- impenetrable. And by every human measurement, he was invincible. But he's, he's crushed with a swift rock right to the face, right? And he's brought down by this courageous shepherd boy, David. That's a story that we love to hear, that we see played often over and over again in what we read, in our movies. That's why there's seven Rocky movies, right? Because the story never gets old. Although Brocky Balboa gets old over time. We see that happen. But, <laughs> but the story itself doesn't get old. We, we learned last week that when we, however, that when we read the scriptures, we really allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. And we surrender to him to allow him to illuminate the word of God to us. That's when we're going to see a new perspective on what God has revealed to us in his word. That's, and that's an important principle for all of us to keep in mind. As we, uh, as we approach Scripture, that we should approach it with humility, right? With a sincere desire to better understand God and how He's revealed to us, Himself to us, most ultimately, obviously, in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And when we do that, then we'll arrive at very different conclusions about what the world thinks about this, about the world thinks about this particular story, or, or even how we perceive the world around us. It's kind of like the, the Yanni Laurel effect. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that, with that, that audio clip that's been going around a lot. If you're, familiar, if you're not familiar with it, Google it later on. It'll keep you busy for hours. Trust me, it's, you're welcome on that one. But people hear that differently, hear sound very differently. Well, my, the, the point is that depending on how we approach God's Word, we're going to arrive at very different conclusions about what we read. It takes time. Takes practice, right? If we're if we're honest, none of us have done it perfectly or, or perfectly arrived at how to do it well all the time. But when we interpret scripture rightly, we look through Christ-centered lenses, as it were. We'll see, for example, that the real the real champion of First Samuel chapter seventeen was not David, right? David was the anointed king, but he really serves as a representative for the greater king, Jesus Christ. There's any, and if there's anybody in that, in that story that we're really meant to identify with, it's really cowardly Israel, right? That Israel is the, is the one who needed somebody to stand in their place, to, to bridge the gap, to, to fight their battles for them. And while we can certainly learn from David, we can learn from his faith, and we can cert- try to emulate it, um, we really shouldn't try to be like David. We, instead, we should really just trust in Jesus Christ, the son of David. Right, the one who it, who vicariously on the cross took on the enemies of sin, Satan, death, and conquered them, and rose victoriously three days later. And now, because of what he has done, the Holy Spirit now indwells us and empowers us to, to live God glorifying lives. As a result, that's the story that's really going to change us. It's the gospel. The gospel story is what's the good news 
And that's what's going to change the human heart in our mind. Underdog stories might give, you, uh, might give you adrenaline boost for a moment. They might give you wings, like Red Bull. But it's really only temporary. It's going to temporarily inflate your self-confidence. It's going to give you some short-term changes in your behavior, maybe, as a result. That, that, that's possible that could happen. But really, the gospel, as it's repeated throughout Scripture, is the one... The one story, the one piece of good news, the one message that really has a power to transform us and change us. It's the power of God's salvation to all who believe. Only the gospel can transform your heart to love Jesus and to love others. So let's keep that in mind as we go through our text this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 18. The passage can be broken up into three sections. Um, in the verses 1 through 5, we see a loyal friend. Verses 6 through 16, we'll see a jealous king. And then lastly, in verses 17 to the end, 17 to 30, we'll see a gruesome mission. First, let's look at the friendship that we see in, between David and Jonathan in verses 1 through 5. So hear the word of the Lord this morning as we read from, from it, verses 1 through 5 of chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's Servants, the word of the Lord. So we can see that in this in this first paragraph of this chapter, the narrator is doing something kind of interesting in his approach as to how he's writing this. He does it in an interesting way that because it, it seems to somewhat follow the events that took place in, in First Samuel chapter seventeen, the end of that. But at the same time, it also has an important aside that he wants to point out to us, uh, as well as a little bit of a summary as to what's going to happen. Uh, in, in David's future, in the days following Goliath's defeat, in the months, maybe even the years later. We're told that as soon as David and Saul had finished this exchange, this conversation between the two of them in verse 58 of chapter 17, Jonathan's soul was knit to David's soul. And the conversation, we look back at the conversation, wasn't really anything that insightful. Didn't look like there was anything particularly special about it. It was a question of identity, if you remember, right? Um, Saul asks, whose son are you, young man? And then David answers, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. I guess you, we, all of us who are here that live in Bethlehem could refer to ourselves as Bethlehemites. Try to use that sometime this week. I'm Chris the Bethlehemite. Nice to meet you. I mean, but it's a, it's a question of identity. There's, there doesn't seem to be anything really special about what he's, what's taking place there. Right? But I think it's not the, it's not the conversation that prompted this soul knitting, as it were, it was what transpired before that conversation. That might have been when it happened. It might have been when the, soul, the two souls were united together in this, in this friendship. But it has to do more with what happened prior to that, right? We look back at what David did and his defeat over Goliath. That had, maybe had something to do with it. But I think it, it, was much more than, it was much more than David's military acumen that caught David, uh, Jonathan's attention, we can look down and we can we look at the passage. We can see that it was really, in fact, David's faith in God. And that both men shared a common passion, a common zeal for the, for the glory of God to be revealed to the world. That's what knit their hearts together. 
how do we know that? We can look back at chapter 14, for instance, when we see Jonathan and what motivated him to pursue the Philistine garrison as he attacked it in Michmash. Right? If you look back at chapter 14, we'll see Jonathan says to, his, to the young man who was, who was carrying his armor, Come, let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And do you remember what happened? What was the outcome? Jonathan and this, and this unnamed armor bearer, between the two of them, take out 20 guys, just two of them together. And because of that, the severe panic breaks out in, in the Philistine camp. And that's when Saul and the rest of the Israelites seem to take notice of what's going on. They rally together and they pursue the Philistines and they, and they take, the, take them on and they are victorious. Really, when we look back at verse 23 of that chapter, we see who really was the one behind the victory. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And that's what Jonathan foresaw. And that's what he was trusting in. And then fast forward to chapter 17, which we looked at last week. David arrives at the standoff, right, between Israel and the Philistines. And he asks this question that gets him in trouble with his brothers. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine in that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then after that, word gets around that he is the only one that's going to volunteer to take on Goliath. And so he's, he's brought into Saul's presence. And he tells Saul, straight up, that it was the Lord who delivered him once from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so we can see that where he's placing his confidence in. And just so there's no, there's no doubt about where he's placing his confidence, and it's in God and his faith in God, he yells out loud enough for Goliath to hear and for all the surrounding armies on both sides of the camp to hear. He says, This day... The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with spear, not with sword, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And that's exactly what God does, right? He delivers Goliath and the rest of the Philistines that are standing behind him, into David's hands and into the rest of Israel's hands. So we see both Jonathan and David have experienced this, this amazing military victory in the face of crazy odds. But we see that the real basis for their friendship was a mutual love for God and in in the, their faith in God and in His power to save His people. If that was not the case, if if it was not their faith that joined them in our shared devotion for God's glory, then we would really be reading not about a, a budding friendship here, but a budding rivalry. Because think about it. Jonathan could have, and in all eyes of the world, should have seen David as a threat. He should have seen David as a threat to his reputation, as a threat to his position as the second in command to the Israelite army. Maybe he could have even seen him as a threat to his relationship with, with his father Saul. That maybe Saul would have shown David more affection than he did for, for his son Jonathan. And if you think about it, if we're honest with ourselves, that's kind of how we like to look at things through the lens of competition. I mean, isn't that how our culture has conditioned us also to behave? 
to compete, to win at all costs. And it was, no, it was really no different then. Even, even though we're millennia removed from, from that time in history, the human heart has not really changed at all. Jonathan could have seen David's victory as a, as a, as a real threat, his celebrity status as a real threat. But instead, it says that he loved David. We're told that twice within just two, two verses here. He loved him as his own soul. You think about it, doesn't that sound a little familiar? The idea of loving someone else as much as you love yourself? I mean, Jesus said that, right? As an answer to what was the greatest commandment when he was asked by the scribes. He says, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what can we learn about this friendship that we see between David and Jonathan? Well, we can see that the principle that we can see from this passage is that the foundation of true friendship is built on a common passion. Not on an affinity for things, not on, on shared interests or hobbies, although, because those can really change on a dime if we're honest with ourselves. And then, and then, not that those relationships built around those are unimportant. They're good. They're given to us by God as well to be enjoyed. But relationships that are, really, that are built around those self-interests, those hobbies, are not sticky enough that are gonna, that's going to keep us together and connected during the ups and downs that we, we go through in life. Now, what, what glued David and Jonathan's soul together was their mutual faith in God and his plan for the for salvation of Israel. And it's the same for us today as well. As Christians, we're, we're united to Christ and we're lied, united to one another because of the gospel, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that makes us reconcile parties to God. It makes us reconcile parties to each other. It makes us friends of God's. It makes us friends with one another. Granted, we're all works in progress. That's true. Let's be honest. That's, that's the reality of it. But also, we should also maintain the reality that that's true. That we are friends of God. We are friends with one another precisely because of Christ's atoning work. Not because of anything we've done ourselves. So the question then becomes, what does it look like to be a godly friend? What's it like to have true friendship? Well, let me highlight just two aspects this morning that you could talk about further in your community groups. I'm just going to give you two. There's probably plenty, but two is enough this morning. Loyalty is the one, and then we're going to look at transparency briefly. We'll see loyalty in these coming chapters, especially uh, as we look at David and Jonathan's friendship as they're kind of put to the test. It begins here, we see, with the covenant that is made between the two of them. Right? They're really serious about their friendship. They're not just sending friend requests to one another. They're actually, uh, they're actually making a covenant with one another. And the language in the original would, is, is referring to cutting a covenant. And what's in mind here is this, the idea of what happened back in those ancient days as when they were making an agreement with one another, they're making a cutting a covenant together, is that they would, they would literally cut animals in two, sever them, and then put them in two different piles, and then they would create this walkway between the two of them. They would walk each between these piles of bloody corpses, and this would be a way of solidifying and symbolizing their desire to remain faithful to their agreement. And if they didn't, then they were essentially communicating, let this also be done to me, let me be broken and, and severed in two. 
like these animals. That's precisely the kind of, kind of covenant we see happening in, in uh, Genesis chapter 15 between God and Abraham. When God initiates the covenant with Abraham, although Abraham's the one left off taking a, taking a little nap while God's the one who walks in between them, if you remember that. But there's something more going on here than just a covenant between two people for the sake of friendship. There's more than just a, a little pinky swear going on here. There's more than this, this blood brothers pact that's going on. It's, it's, there's a political dimension here to what's happening. It says that Jonathan actually gave up his royal robe, the one that he wore that identified him as the heir apparent to the throne. He gave that up. He gave up his army, gave up his bow, his belt. It says even he gave up his sword. And here's what's happening. With this, with this gesture, Jonathan is, is essentially abdicating his throne. He's, he's, he's doing something that is inconceivable from the world's perspective. He's superior to David in every way, culturally, royally, politically, monetarily, and he's, he's honoring the lesser party, David. He's abdicating his throne and handing it over to David. He's doing it unofficially, but that's what he's doing. He's, he's communicating his allegiance also to this new leader of Israel, this, this future king of Israel. And it's, it's, I mean, think about it. It's a remarkable thing. Why would anybody do that? I mean, put yourself in a situation even today. Like, whenever have you seen somebody in royalty, somebody in, uh, in government, somebody who's got a lot of power and prestige and, and, and a lot of riches, and they just hand it over to somebody else who's a nobody? I mean, where's the logic in doing that? Why would anybody do that? Well, we see Jonathan here has an interesting perspective, right? He, he sees something different. He recognizes that, as we see over and over in this passage, communicated again, this refrain that God was with David. And he surrenders his royal rights, his privileges, for God's chosen leader. Remember, David's anointing was not a public one. It, was, it, was a, it was really was a private affair between him and... Samuel was there who anointed him, and his brothers were all there, but that's, that's it. And even though Jonathan wasn't there, it's still plainly obvious to him that David is somehow anointed for some special purpose. He sees in David this, the legitimate future leader of Israel. And as a God-fearing man, Jonathan is willing to step aside and to surrender his rights to God's plan. And his pledges allegiance, his loyalty to God's anointed, God's man. We'll see that in the coming chapters. That Jonathan's going to remain loyal to David. He's going to, on multiple occasions, save David's very life from his father's intentions to murder him. Jonathan keeps his covenant with David. But we also see that it's a two-way street. That David is also here, even though Jonathan initiated the covenant... David was also part of the covenant, and we'll see that he will also keep his loyalty to Jonathan. Even after Jonathan is killed in battle, he shows kindness to his son Mephibosheth later on, and he's, in a sense, keeping his covenant. As Proverbs 17, 17 reminds us, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Loyalty is a, is a trademark of true friendship. Having a friend who, who loves you who's a constant in your life, who's going to encourage you in the gospel, that's going to help you navigate through the difficult times that, in life. So we see loyalty as one hallmark. Now let's also look at the characteristic of transparency. 
Transparency has become an, a very uh, hot topic and term in our culture now. If we think about it, more than any time in history, we're, we're demanding greater levels of transparency from our politicians, from our government, right? From online retailers, from social media platforms, more and more transparency. But what is transparency, how, and how does it really relate to friendship? Well, transparency really, to use a synonym, just means vulnerability. It means opening yourself up to somebody and allowing them to influence your life, giving them, giving them the okay to impact and influence your life. In this way, friendship is, is a way in which it cultivates maturity in different aspects of our lives. It cultivates greater maturity emotionally, psychologically, and of course, spiritually as well. Dr. Tim Keller does a great job of listing four different types of transparency and how they relate to friendship. We'll hit them briefly this morning, but again, something you could talk about and flesh out a little bit more in your community groups together. But the first one I want to point out this morning is that friends are open about their feelings. Feelings are important. That's coming from a guy up here saying that feelings are important. It's true that maybe our culture makes makes our feelings, our emotions maybe a little bit overvalued, right? They, they've now unfortunately become the, the foundation of our identity and the foundation of our decision-making, but they're not all bad, right? We need to also remember that at the same time to keep a balanced approach that, that it's part of being human, that it's part of our makeup, the way that God has designed us to be, to have emotions. And it's important then that we can have a a friend that we can, we can talk to and be open and honest about our feelings with one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Right? A friend is there to, to understand, to listen, to sympathize with, or with our plights, with the way that we're feeling, to, to also help us to lasso in our emotions as well and to let us know and help us determine where our, our feelings are leading us in a good direction or in an unhealthy direction. So friends are open about their feelings. Friends are also open about their common life. And what I mean by that is that friends are open with one another, that they don't have to put on a a good show, put on a good face. There's no facade. They can be honest honest with with one another, what's going on in your lives, the particulars of life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. They can be open and honest and vulnerable in that aspect of their life. Friends are also open with their decisions and decision-making. Do you have somebody, a friend of yours, that you would let into your mind, or at least into your thought processes? Friends are those who you can go to, and you value their input. You value their advice enough, and you wouldn't even consider maybe even making a a major life decision without first talking to them. That's a friend you you can trust with the truth, even though what they might have to say to you in response to your opening up of What's going on in your life is it might hurt to hear the truth, but they're going to be there. And faithful are are the wounds of a friend, right? As Scripture says. Friends are also, lastly, open about their flaws. Now, this is probably one of the most difficult, it's probably the most difficult part of vulnerability or transparency, right? Is that, and the reason is because we we don't like to be open and honest about our shortcomings. We don't like to be reminded about our flaws. We'd rather just remain blissfully ignorant about painful reality of our imperfections, right? And instead, we don't want to hear the reality sometimes that, that is true and is actually good for us. And I think that's, that's proving more and more true in our culture now as we look at the way 
things are going and, and the way that our culture has redefined what friendship really is. And the, instead of a friendship who will be open and honest with you, they're, they're going to be the person who's going to be there to encourage you uh, and coddle you, really, as you pursue whatever makes you happy. Even if it's self-destructive, even if it's, if it's, if it's destructive habits and desires, as long as it's making me happy, I want you there, there just enough so that I can have, feel good about my decisions. And even if it means at the expense of true, meaningful relationships. So a friend, as you looked at, is someone who is going to be loyal, one who is mutually transparent about their feelings, about common life, about decisions, about flaws. But why? Right? Why would I want to do that? Why, why do I want to be a friend or why would I open myself up to that degree? And the answer is because true friends have your best interest in mind. Right? They, they love you. They, they have a stake in your sanctification, which is your, your, your holiness. You're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. They're going to be the ones who are going to persist in pointing you and directing you to Jesus in the gospel when you need it most. If you've been coming to Kings for a little while, you've probably heard us often talk about, uh, about preaching the gospel to ourselves even each and every day, pounding it into our minds every day. But isn't it also true that we need a great cloud of witnesses around us? We need friends. We need people who love and care about us who are also going to preach the gospel to us in our time of need. Amen? Right? But Jonathan is not the only one mentioned here. He's not the only character here and that has an opinion about David. So let's look at our second point this morning. We're going to turn to verses 6 through 16 and look at a, a jealous king. So hear the word of the Lord. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this displeased him very much. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand and he went out and came in before the people And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So we see here the story is picking up now, back at the end of chapter 17 now. David and Saul are now returning home from from the battlefield, and as the custom was at the day that all those um, who were going to be celebrating the, the military victory of their king, they would go out of the city, actually, outside of the city gates, and they would meet the king there, and, the, and they would escort him into his kingdom, all the while celebrating what he had done in battle. And so that's exactly what's going on here. And so we see these women that are coming out from the cities. They're, they're, they're dancing, they're playing their instruments, uh, they're singing songs. They even wrote a special song for this, for this most special of occasions. And they're singing, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And we told that Saul was incredibly offended by this. 
right? Not because the song itself was theologically vacuous. It was. There's no mention of God as the victor, as the one who was behind the victory. Maybe that's what should have offended him, really, if he was going to be offended at this. But it wasn't because of that. It was because he was, we see he was displeased because he was envious and jealous of David. And that's what fuels his, his anger toward David. But as the commentator John Woodhouse points out, he says that, uh, that Saul's offense, he attributes it not to anything other than Saul's own paranoia. He says, quote, If you understand the convention of Hebrew poetry, and you're not paranoid, you can appreciate that there have been, may have been nothing deliberately sinister in the woman's song. They were linking Saul and David together in the victory. The convention of putting a, a number in the first line and then beefing it up in the second line was normal Hebrew poetic style. It, it was as if they were to say more prosaically, Saul and David have struck down their thousands and ten thousands. And Saul didn't want to hear that. Didn't matter to him what they were really saying. He should have known this, but instead he decided instead to feed his own growing jealousy. We see in verse 9 that he eyed David from that day on. And the narrator wants to wants us to to look back and he wants to see us, the stark contrast between Jonathan's love for David and Saul's envy toward David, right? It's unmistakable what 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 the narrator is doing here so that we can see it very clearly. It isn't long, though, we see it happens right before our eyes. Saul's jealousy of David is is quickly maturing into hate. There's a reason why, why Jesus links hate with murder, in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. And we see a good example of this right here happening, happening in this passage here where we see that when envy is left unchecked, it's going to turn into murderous hatred. Saul is, is being now oppressed by this, this harmful spirit. We hear the situation happening in his house. And David is again on hand here to try to help soothe his mood. That was his job to do, is play his liar and keep the, the, keep the, the king calm. But this time, it's different. The music isn't helping. Right? There's no relief from his anxiety and oppression. The ESV uses the word, he raved. But really, the, the, the Hebrew word here is actually prophesied. It's the same word that was used in chapter 10, where it says, Saul prophesied when the Spirit of God came upon him and, and was clearly identifying Saul as the anointed one of Israel, he would be the king of Israel. It was, it, was, it was made evidenced by that fact. But here, we see the context is different here. We see a different spirit. We see a harmful spirit coming upon him. And so now it's raving. He's, he's becoming a, a false prophet, as it were, really, for using the word prophecy here. And, he, and, and now instead, we see chaotic babbling coming out of his mouth because of the spirit that's oppressing him. But really, however erratic his behavior, his outbursts are that are going on here, we can still see... The text shows us clearly that his intentions were still, he was very clear in his mind as to what his intentions were. Right? It can still be considered attempted murder in the first degree because he's premeditating his violence against David. I will pin David to the wall, it says. In fact, David was, or Saul was probably using his apparent lunacy as a way of covering up what he really wanted to do, his plot to kill David. And he must have been a master at doing it because David doesn't seem to be at all concerned. He, he gets away twice because the Lord's with him, but he keeps coming back to Saul. And I think it's because they, again, it was, he was 
hidden from, his, from him the real intentions of Saul. And they, they were able to mask it by talking, oh, it's just Saul again. It's the king is having another one of his episodes. But the narrator lets us, lets us in on the secret, right? We get to see it a little more clearly. But the text goes even a little further. It reveals a little bit more to us. It tells us that Saul wanted to kill David for a reason. It was because he was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So herein lies the heart of the matter. Saul recognized the very same thing that, that Jonathan had about David. But his response was completely different. The Lord was with him, but unlike Jonathan, who would willingly relinquish his rights, his rights to the throne for the sake of God's sovereign and glorious plan, Saul is instead trying to hold on to the power for as long as he possibly can. He sees that David is anointed in a special way, even though, again, he wasn't also at that at the ceremony in, in which David was anointed. It was, again, it was a private affair. He wasn't there, but it's still clear enough to him that God had anointed David for a special reason, and he would be the, the future leader, and that's what terrified him. What principle can we draw? What can that remind us? Well, family, more fierce than a thousand Goliaths, more fierce than an innumerable Philistine army is the sovereign God of the universe. Right? The, and that's the weight, that's the force that's behind David that's, that's, that's moving in his life, and that's what's plaguing Saul. That's, that's what he sees when he looks at David. Saul's actually reached a point in his heart and mind that he, he would do anything in his power to erase the image of God that he sees laying before him in David and to wipe himself clear of, the, of God on his conscience. And that's what we see him trying to do with his manipulation in this next part of the passage this morning. So let's look at verses 17 through 30 at a gruesome mission. Let's read verses, those verses here this morning, the word of God again. Then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistine be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But, the time when, but by the time Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel the Mahalathite for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David, and, he saw, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delighted in you, and all the servants love you. Now then become the king's beloved son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and I have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines, and when the servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. 
And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. And when Saul told, saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out to David, he had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So we're seeing here that Saul's now not just setting himself up against just some person named David, some individual. He's actually setting himself up against God's anointed one. He's, and, and ultimately, he's setting himself up against God himself. So that every time he looked at David and heard his name, Saul was reminded about his impending judgment, about the inevitability of, dis, of his destruction, that, that, he, that his power is not going to, going to be lasting forever. And that's why he first tries to kill David, what we saw a minute ago. And that, when that didn't work, David is, is pushed away. He's, he's brought out of Saul's presence. He's put in charge of a thousand men to go out into battle. And it appears that here that Saul seems to even have uh, uh, abandoning his responsibility of going in and out before the people. A military term meaning that he would be going out and leading the people in battle against, uh, against the enemies of God. Which is clearly what the king was supposed to do. But he's, he's, no, he's now abandoning that responsibility, giving it over to David. But the more he seems to busy David with everything, the more he seems to kind of push him out of his mind, keeping him at arm's length, it seems that David's popularity only continues to grow, and it's getting back to Saul. So then Saul finally sees an opportunity, he thinks that he can destroy David while also keeping his, his hands clean at the same time, right? He offers his oldest daughter Merib as a trophy wife. If only David will, what? Take up Saul's banner to fight the Lord's battles. So Saul is again using his MO, he's using religious language here to really mask his true intentions. He's, he's actually so twisted at this point that he is cheering on for a Philistine victory over the people of God if it will take David out of the equation, if it will remove the David problem. But David... Either we see him outright declining the offer, maybe because he, he, he can't afford it, as we'll see the bride price later on, um, or maybe Saul reneges on his offer for some reason, but either way his plan is foiled, doesn't come to fruition. But then he gets another chance. He finds out that his second daughter, Michal, loves David. And he actually devises this, this, this plot, this plan, to use his own daughter's love for David as a weapon against David. How low can you go, Saul, right? We're thinking that you're using your own daughter as a weapon. And he knows that he's actually giving David an offer that he can't refuse. He, he knows what's going to appeal to David. He offers him a wife that loves him. He offers him a place in the royal family of Israel as a, as a son-in-law. And he also gives him a chance to fight valiantly and avenge the, the, the king, as well as fight valiantly for God, for God's battles. And David, of course, jumps at the chance to do that. So now we've got to come to the awkward question, why the foreskins, right? Why the 100 foreskins? Well, I'm glad you asked. Actually, not really, but here's the reality. I, I, think, I think what we need to look at, though, is just David and Jonathan's battle cries. Well, they, they refer often to the Philistines as the, the uncircumcised Philistines. So this idea of, of being uncircumcised was a reference to the Philistines being a rejected 
people they, they have rejected and were hostile toward God's people. And the men of Israel were, on the other hand, circumcised as prescribed by God as a way of symbolizing their identity as the people of God. Right? They were set apart from the pagan nations of the world to be a nation unto God, to reflect his glory to the surrounding nations. So Saul's using this, and it seems a little bit gruesome, but he's using this as a way of essentially appealing to David's his passion for def- defending God's character. And, and, and it looks like his plan actually works, at least in some sense. It, it gets David to agree to the, to the mission, but at the same time, it's not what he expected the outcome to look like. So, Saul, so what Saul's doing here is he's, he's trying to stack the odds against David. He's, he's playing the numbers game. If he goes out and battle often enough, he'll eventually be destroyed. He, he's sending him out to shake the, the hornet's nest so that eventually David will be stung and never will be wiped with death. But, but he's, we see, once again, David's victorious because the Lord is with him. And so we see Saul's evil plan ends up actually serving to increase David's fame throughout Israel. Interesting. We can't help but see, I mean, the sovereign hand of God in this passage. And he's using Saul's evil and his plots to actually use them to highly esteem his anointed one. And that God's orchestrating great good to come out of great evil. Sound like an interesting and maybe memorable theme or refrain? We look at the cross, we see that God used human violence that was perpetrated against God's anointed by his, on his beloved son to accomplish the greatest and most noblest conquest in human history. Our sin, all of humanity's collective rebellion against God was at its worst. Right? We, we are all individually responsible for our part in our violence against God's anointed. And although we were enemies of one another, we were able to find a unifying Battle cry. We, we were unified to murder God's Son. And yet, incredibly, God used our sin to accomplish His great plan of redemption. Our redemption, our transformation from enemies into friends. When the crushing weight of God's judgment should have, been, should have buried us in an instant, instead it fell on Jesus Christ. Jesus was not treated, has not treated us as we deserve but he's done the unthinkable. He's actually graciously befriended us. He went as far as to, to leave the glories of heaven, in a sense to, to abdicate his throne in order to make his enemies his friends. And before we could, we could ever be friends with him, we first had to be reconciled. We had to be reconciled to him. Jesus is the greater Jonathan because his humility actually purchased our freedom. From sin. He took upon himself the sin of our antagonism toward him, our antagonism toward one another. He took on our selfishness. He took on the defiance that we had against him, defiance toward one another, the hatred that we had toward him, hatred that we had toward one another, and he utterly destroyed them at the cross. And because of that, we have now been reconciled to God. We have a relationship with God. We've been ushered into an eternal friendship with Jesus Christ who spilt his very blood for us. He is the only perfectly loyal friend who is trustworthy and more than capable of bringing us through the sufferings in this life that we have presently until the day he comes back when there will be no more suffering. And because of his sacrificial love and because of his vicarious death and atoning death on Calvary, God has highly exalted Jesus Christ 
to be the name above all other names. His fame is greater than David's. Listen, David's celebrity was just a pointer to a greater glory that we see in Jesus Christ. The question is, though, for us is, who is Jesus to you? Will you surrender to him? Will you trust in his accomplishments rather than your own? Will you trust in his accomplishments and his reconciliatory work? Or will you you remain his enemy and in danger for the wrath and his rightful judgment? I pray this morning that you will see the, the beauty, the glory of God, and that you will be reconciled to God. One last thing I want to point out, though, this morning is that because of Jesus' work, we are also friends with God's people. We have a single shared devotion and passion and that is, that is completely opposite from what the, the, the world's passions are. We want to see Jesus highly exalted and we want to see his glory revealed to the entire world. We're no longer out for our own self-interest like we once were, but we now live for God and we live toward other people. And that's what it means to, to demonstrate and declare the gospel to one another, to, to each other and to those who are maybe unfriendly toward us who ridicule us, who antagonize and malign us. After all, weren't we once enemies of God, deserving of hell, and yet God has shown us his immeasurable grace and mercy and love to us? Let me close by reading this passage from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I think it sums everything up very well this morning. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, of having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for telling us the truth for being transparent to us by revealing and self-disclosing your will and your character to us. And it's painful to know the reality that we are rebellious sinners against you and that we have took it upon ourselves to to unite with one another in one passion, which is to destroy you, and yet you have shown immeasurable kindness to us. You have come when we were enemies of of yours to come and to make us your friends. Your adopted children, as it were, really, bring us into the fold. Oh, Lord, that's so humbling. Let it always be in the forefront of our minds. And may it cause us to just rejoice 
and to extend love and mercy and friendship and grace to others that we encounter. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.